Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services. Liberty Language Services is a woman and minority-owned language service company. They have over a decade of industry experience providing on-site, video remote, and over-the-phone interpretation, translation, and ASL services to public and private sector clients. They're continuously recruiting for freelance interpreters and translators, so make sure to check out their website for new career opportunities. Liberty is passionate about making interpreter education more accessible to everyone. So whether you're new to interpreting or have been interpreting professionally for years, you can take advantage of their online courses, workshops, and CEUs. Their most popular online course is the Professional Medical Interpreter. It's a self-paced, comprehensive, 40-hour medical interpreting course for individuals looking to get qualified to interpret in medical and healthcare settings. Upon completion of the course, students will be able to earn the title of Qualified Medical Interpreter. And for a limited time only, Liberty is offering a discount for the Professional Medical Interpreter course to brand the interpreter listeners. Use the discount code BTI50 when you sign up online for the Professional Medical Interpreter to get $50 off the course. You can find the discount code and more information about Liberty Language Services in the episode notes. Welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host, and welcome to season three of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Can you believe that? We're already at season three, and if you haven't yet noticed, we're doing things a little bit different, uh, bringing you always with good intention, helpful resources and tools that you can applicably use in your day-to-day life. So I hope that you enjoy this episode and everything that's contained within it. Speaking of this episode, I am super honored to introduce our next guest. Javier Castillo Jr. is president and founder of Castillo Language Services in Greenville, North Carolina. He is a conference interpreter, federal and state court certified interpreter, CCHI certified medical interpreter, and has been a contract interpreter for the U.S. Department of State for over 20 years. He is currently the president of the Carolina Association of Translators and Interpreters, a director on the board of the National Association of Judiciary Interpreters and Translators, and is head of the U.S. chapter of the International Association of Translators and Interpreters. Javier has trained conference, court, and medical interpreters since 2002 and is a frequent speaker and trainer at national and international conferences. He has provided training workshops across the United States, in Valencia, Spain, Toronto, Canada, and Buenos Aires, Argentina. During the past year alone, he designed and taught over 70 online courses for over a thousand interpreters across the globe. He has also designed and taught courses on interpreting issues at Campbell Law School, has been a guest instructor at the UNC School of Law, and has taught continuing education courses for members of the state and federal judiciary in Eastern North Carolina. So, without further ado, here's Javier Castillo Jr. 
Javier, I'd like to formally welcome you to the show. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you, Maria. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. I want to uh, get into what I typically like to do to our guests and not as a form of torture, um, but as a form of making uh, connections as we hear your story and as your story evolves here on the podcast. And I ask all our guests, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? When I was growing up, I oscillated between wanting to be an attorney and being an actor. Really? I did, yes. Okay, well, I think that attorneys do kind of have to put on a show or an act, right? So that's some similarities there. Absolutely. And, and could you tell us why those specific career paths? I think attorney from just watching all the, uh, the great movies with lawyers in them, uh, you know, uh, 12 Angry Men, um, the ones with Tom Hanks, uh, Tom Hanks, uh, Tom Cruise, uh, A Few Good Men, for example, you know, those great passionate uh, uh, closing statements and opening statements and uh, the gotcha moments. I used to watch a lot of Matlock as well. So I think the part of being uh, an attorney was also based on seeing great acting. So that's kind of some pretty serious type of movie. Like, I mean, you were into this stuff, like was somebody else watching it and you just happened to be there? Or was this a little bit later on? Uh, probably the movies, maybe those movies a little later on. Um, but just, uh, I guess, as long as I can remember wanting to be something, uh, it was actor and lawyer. Awesome. I was just going to say, like, I, I think uh, at my young age, I, w I wanted to be like one of the ponies on My Little Pony. And you're over <laughs> here watching, <laughs> watching these, these pretty heavy loaded uh, movies and wanted to be an attorney. What about the actor piece then? What, what about that? Like, you know, were you interested about? I'd always been involved in acting. Uh, did theater when I was a child. I'm, I'm actually still an actor. Uh, I still do theater. Uh, my grandmother actually was a famous actress in Nicaragua. Really? You know, Carmen, I never had a chance to see her perform, um, but she was definitely well known in, in Nicaragua for uh, being a stage actress. Wow. So, so it's in the blood. In the blood. It's in the blood. <laughs> Speaking of Nicaragua, uh, talk to us a little bit about where you grew up. So I grew up in basically in North Carolina. Um, I was born in Spartanburg, South Carolina. After that, my parents moved to Madrid, lived in Madrid, Spain for a few years, and then came back to South Carolina for a year, but, and then moved to Greenville, North Carolina in 86. So starting in the second grade, uh, this has been my home. So, yeah. okay. So you've been doing school. You did, did you do some time in, sounds like jail. Did you do some schooling time in Madrid? <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, serve think, time out in Madrid? No. Did you do your schooling a few years in Madrid then? I was very young. Very young? I mm. think it was uh, kindergarten or pre-K. Mm. Uh, what was the languages that were spoken in the home? So we grew up with a, a one language, one parent, one language household. And my father, who's from Nicaragua, uh, only speaks Spanish to us and has ever since we were born. And my mother, uh, who's from the States, 
uh, only speaks English to us. And that was how it was uh, growing up. We couldn't respond back to my father in English. We had to respond back in Spanish. And with my mother, it was always English. Was that a rule he set from the get-go? Very, very strict about it. Very firm rule. I remember that same rule too, growing up with my father. So that's so funny. That's the only reason I think I'm, I consider myself bilingual is because he was just, you know, very strict about that. Um, Yeah. Well now, now I see why it was so important at first. It was just like, what a pain dad. I just want to speak to you in English. (laughs) It's just so much easier. Share with us a fond memory growing up. Oh, wow. Um, that is a great question. Uh, growing up, I think my best memories are being with my family. Uh, my mother's side, we, I'm the oldest of, or second oldest of, I think now there's 36 of us first cousins. My mother was the oldest of 11, 11. Uh, and so my mom's family was always in the South Carolina area and in the Spartanburg, South Carolina area. And every Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, summer, uh, all the co- my, all the uncles and aunts we get together, and uh, all the cousins we would we'd be hanging out. So definitely, my fondest memories are just hanging out in my grandparents' house uh, with all my uncles and and just a slew of cousins. Um, yeah. Every time every time we'd come back, uh, there'd be a new baby for years. <laughs> just every every six weeks, every six months, there'd be another baby. So that that was a. Uh, that was definitely a highlight of, of my growing up. And then another reason to get together, right? And so on and so forth it went. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, all right, let's get into your growing up in, um, at first, North Carolina. You don't remember Madrid much, perhaps, or maybe maybe you do a little bit. And then... Um, uh, rest of the time in North Carolina. In North Carolina. And then, so you're doing schooling and you're growing up uh, bilingual, right? So you're doing English, you're doing Spanish. When did you begin doing the acting piece at a young age <laughs> before we get into the language aspect? So acting, I, there's a children's theater called Smiles and Frowns. And so I would did uh, children's theater, I think second grade, third grade, fourth grade, uh, all throughout. Mm-hmm. And then anytime there was an opportunity in school to either write a paper or do a skit, my choice was always do a skit instead of writing paper. So anytime there was a chance to do acting, uh, also did it in, in high school. Uh, didn't get involved in theater until my junior and senior years. And then I was a uh, lead in a couple of the, the, the uh, main stage performances in high school. I've always admired, well, when I was in school, I always admired the students that were in theater because I just thought, that it took so much courage. I was always, um, unfortunately, too embarrassed to do a lot of stuff that had to do with, you know, theater, acting or anything like that, dancing even, even though I loved it. It was like, ah, but doing it in front of, you know, like an audience that I would totally chicken out. So I admire the fact that at such a young age, you were, you know, like that, that wasn't even a thing for you. And if it was, you learned to, some ca- somehow overcome it sounds like so the funny thing is i for a long time uh had stage fright and if i had to get up and give a speech or a presentation on my own i, I would shake i would be nervous but acting was different because it wasn't me 
It was a character. It was somebody else. And so I could disappear into whatever character I was at the time. And so it didn't feel like me. So I had no problem with doing that part, but actually me getting up in front and giving a speech, uh, I used to get extremely nervous. That is so interesting, but I can totally see why. And I, and I can totally see now how that can totally play into what you're currently doing. So right before we get into that juicy part, though, tell us, how did language come to be a part of your life? Uh, aside from growing up with it at home, like professionally, when did that begin to uh, develop? So language, I was always interested in language. Uh, starting in elementary school, I took French because I was getting Spanish at home. I took French. Then in high school and college, I took Spanish and French as well. So continued uh, with the languages. And I always wanted to do something with language. That was my, my goal. Uh, and I went to East Carolina University and I was a business major, business in Spanish, and would have minored in French had I had an extra few hours, uh, but didn't have time to squeeze a full French uh, minor or major in. And I, my goal was to do international business, use my language skills, travel the world, do something in business related to uh, rather, and have the ability to, to use my language skills. And then it didn't happen that way. Why? It did not happen that way because I heard they needed interpreters at the courthouse. And when I was a junior in college, I had just finished uh, an internship uh, over the summer, didn't have anything lined up for the fall, was looking for work. I heard they needed interpreters and my interpreting career began immediately after that. Why? You were hooked. You went to your first assignment and you're like, oh, this is me. This, it was, it was kind of like that. So Back in, this was 1999 when I uh, began interpreting professionally, uh, although I should not have been. That's when I started. No one, I, no one will know. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I heard they needed interpreters at the courthouse. So I went over to the public defender's office and I walked in and I spoke with the secretary. I said, hi, I, I hear you guys are looking for interpreters. And she answered, Yes. Um, do you speak Spanish? I said, yeah. Well, great. We have a case uh, on Thursday. So meet this attorney at this courtroom and there you go. And that's how my career started as uh, as a court interpreter. It was very different back then. Uh, North Carolina had not uh, joined the consortium. Certification was not a thing, I think, or either that year they had just started or they followed the next year they 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 followed. Um, and so you, you, there were no real requirements to be an interpreter other than apparently answering yes. One yes to, question. <laughs> do you speak Spanish? Uh, right around that same time, I had met uh, a guy who worked at the hospital and ran into him on campus. He said, hey, Javier, I'm leaving for Miami. My job's going to be available. Are you interested? I said, sure. Why not? So I went and to the hospital, uh, and I applied there. They actually had a uh, an interview process, and I had to answer questions. And there was a, a interpreting test where I was my, my abilities were measured, and I ended up passing. And so that during my junior year, I became a, a professional medical interpreter and a professional court interpreter. 
Wow. Professional because I was getting paid for it, right? (laughs) So Monday through Friday, when I wasn't in class, I'd be at the jail or at attorney's offices or the courtrooms. Uh, Weekend nights, I was working as a staff interpreter at the hospital. Uh, My shift was 3 to 11 every Friday, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Saturday nights, and 7 to 11 on Sunday. Were you sold as soon as you were doing these things where you were like? Absolutely, because who gets to do that? My buddies would be out at the bar Friday night, and I'd be in labor and delivery. Yeah. (laughs) I'd, I'd be in shock trauma. You know, they're in stats class and I'm interpreting for a defendant in a murder trial. Like who gets who gets to do that? Um, I got a chance to see all these really interesting things, things that nobody outside of that profession. Like if you're not an anesthesiologist or a nurse or a doctor, you're not going to be in an operating room. But I was there. Right. You're not going to be in shock trauma unless you're in the ED staff. But I was there. And so I got to see all this really cool stuff, but got to be exposed to uh, all these different sides of both the legal profession, working with the attorneys and the judges, the prosecutors, and then working with all the medical staff and just really got to learn a whole lot. And that's really what drew me into the profession. What and that and I had a knack for it, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, definitely without a doubt my acting abilities came in to play because as interpreters, you have to have a good memory. And I'd been used to memorizing speeches and old plays, the lines of of plays, right? Long uh, monologues. And so I'd always been developing my short-term memory uh, throughout my life. And so that definitely was a, a key factor into my ability or to, to being able to do the, to do the job well. That is so interesting because, um, you know, if we if we really think back at the story that you just shared with us, you hadn't taken any interpreting training, right, or interpreter training. Like it was just fresh um, out of where you know you were still a junior still in, in school, college. Yeah. You were still in school doing uh, majoring in business, so there was really no like formal training. So you go in there, but the acting piece comes into play and helps you out with memory. So I, you had mentioned just now also that the court interpreting that had they just rolled out um, certification that year, did that affect you at any point while you were already working? As far as uh, not being able to work, no, because there were only at that time, I think when I graduated, there were only 40 interpreters in the entire state. I was in the sec- in the entire state of North Carolina. I was in the second group. The fact that it happened uh, is really what propelled me to move forward in my career. The so when I graduated, uh, I said, "This is this is what I want to do. I am I'm an interpreter, and I wanted to do it the right way." I realized if I'm going to make a career out of this, I'm going to, I need to do this, not ad hoc. I need to get some training and their certification that exists. I want to be, you know, the first certified interpreter in this area for superior court. Like that would be the end all be all. If I could just one day become a state court certified interpreter, that, that'll be it. That, I made that was, it. I, I made it. I, you know, <laughs> I would have made it. <clears throat> and so I joined uh, every professional association that I could. As soon as I got out, I joined the uh, ATA, uh, NAGIT, the National Association of Judiciary Interpreters and Translators, the Carolina Association of Translators and Interpreters, 
anything that I could do to uh, learn about the profession, to get training, uh, I did. I got every book, every audio tape, anything, anything that had the word interpreter or translator on it, I absorbed it and um, wanted, to, wanted to do it right. My, my goal was to, like I said, pass the uh, state court interpreter exam, which historically has a 20% pass rate. Hmm. I know. I've been hearing that a lot. Like, that's pretty scary. Now, did the state of uh, um, North Carolina, did they, they had the certification? Uh, so when I graduated, I think they had their first group. And then I got my certification in 2001, I believe is when I got certified. So, so yeah, so I was in the second group of uh, certified interpreters. In the now, state. I imagine that number dwindled like even more. You had said earlier that in the total uh, in, in the state in total, there were 40 court interpreters. Is that correct? So then all of a sudden, the certif certified interpreters were... No, there were uh, 40 certified. Ah, I gotcha. Were, okay. Yeah, right. And there were hundreds, still are hundreds, um, if not, I don't know, thousands uh, in the state, but just not with any certification. After you get certified, do you continue to work with the hospital or do you transition to full-on court interpreting? So, you know, I, I kept working with the hospital and this is kind of where my career took a different path. Hey, before we continue, let me tell you a little bit about the HLS Education Terms Online Glossary. The HLS Education Terms Online Glossary provides easy access to the Spanish translation of educational terms. No more shuffling through countless glossaries. The HLS Network of Language Consultants comprises a veteran district and county office of education translators that have an in-depth knowledge of K-12 terminology. Translators will have access to terms, acronyms, and phrases related to special education, English language learner programs, parent advisory committees, medical and legal vocabulary, academic subject-specific terms, and so much more. In addition, this live glossary allows users to request new terms and tag favorites. Using the HLS Education Terms Online Glossary will increase your translation speed, accuracy, and vocabulary consistency. Try a free 30-day trial today by visiting www.hlsglossary.com. Um, since my goal was to pass the certification exam, mm -hmm. I knew that I needed training. And I looked at all the different options that were available. Uh, I looked at, at that time, Georgetown had a master's degree a program. The school College of Charleston had a master's degree in bilingual interpreting, a Monterey Institute, uh, which is now Middlebury Institute, had, has their conference interpreting masters. And they were, and Charleston also had like a whole summer program as well. And then I found the Agnes Hari Institute in Arizona, the National Center for State Courts, um, or the, sorry, the University of Arizona in Tucson as the, uh, the Agnes Hari Institute. And it was a three-week course for federal interpreters. For federally for federal court interpreters, interpreter training. And that's what fit my budget and my timeline. So I saved up. I think it cost me, you know, like five grand to fly out there for three weeks, whatever it was the time. It was more than I made in a month, right? But I yeah. said, you know what, this is important. If I can just one day become state certified, this is it's worth it. This is what it what it costs. I had also gotten private tutoring, uh, had also reached out to uh, other interpreters that 
that come in to give training. So I had a couple weekend courses under my belt and some private tutoring as well. And so when I got to the Agnes Har Institute, there were about 60 of us who were students and they gave you an entrance exam to put you as a beginner, intermediate, or advanced. So they've got group classes and then classes that were specialized for your your level. Mm. And because I had studied so hard uh, on my own and with uh, the tutoring and the training, uh, I was put into the advanced group. And there were, I think there were nine of us, eight of us in the advanced group out of 60. And there was a man there by the name of Mark Fallow, who happened to be the coordinator for the interpreters at the U.S. Department of State. After spending three weeks with uh, me, he said, Javier, you got to come to D.C. and work with us. Uh, come take the exam. I said, okay, uh, sure. Now, this was July of 2001. September 11th happened. So there was a bit of a slowdown. Uh, and then finally, it was in February or April the following year, 2002, that they were able to schedule my interview and exam. And I went up to D.C., and uh, took the exam and began working as a, an interpreter for the State Department. Wow. So in a period of one and a half, two years uh, from going to local hospital, local court, jail, my next major assignment was being flown to uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to work with the, to interpret for a delegation of high-ranking police officers from Columbia on an official State Department program for um, with the Anti-Terrorism Assistance Program. So... My ceiling of what I could be doing as an interpreter just completely got shattered. Um, and then I've been working as a contract interpreter with the state for the last 20, 20 21 years. And, that is uh, so amazing. Yeah, it was completely amazing. Uh, it was surreal to me. Uh, it was, it was, it was just, I mean, it's the best thing that, that ever happened because it really opened my eyes as to what this work can be. Uh, I was fine. I finally met interpreters who had credentials, who had training. The people I work with, many of them went through uh, Monterey. Uh, these people have been working you know, with State Department for for years. They've interpreted for the secretary for uh, traveling around the world. And I'm like, wow, this is this is uh, this is really cool. The other thing that was really cool was I got there and I'm interpreting, and everybody's happy. And they're all educated and they're having these great conversations and they're happy to be there, which is totally different from all of the other interpreting work that I've done. Because nobody is happy in the courtroom and nobody is happy in the hospital, except for maybe the family is giving birth. But I mean, other than that, it's fluorescent lights and sickness and illness and people on their worst days of their life when they're being tried or they're talking, recounting the times that they were victimized or they're suffering and they're, they're sick and they're at the hospital. So that's all I knew of interpreting just courts and jails and, and hospitals. And now I'm seeing this whole other professional side where people are educated and, and having conversations and they're happy. And, and the role of the interpreter there is very different from a medical interpreter or a court interpreter where we have no interaction and we don't want to, and we can't have interaction with the people that we're interpreting for. we have to be completely unbiased and impartial and neutral, but there my role was as a liaison interpreter. And so my, my job is to help these people and, and make conversation, go out to dinner with them, take them on trips and, and do cultural activities. And so 
that just, again, was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And then, you know, thousand amazing experiences after that with State Department. So I kept uh, working with the hospital and then with the courts on a freelance basis. And then I would take assignments with SATE. And they were, at that time, they were usually about three to four week assignments. So I'd be on the road for three to four weeks at a time traveling across the, the country. And uh, after doing that for, for a while, I had to leave the hospital because they couldn't take shifts anymore. And then I kept working with my my private clients and then started my own company. And then just have since that time have done a mix of just uh, working with local clients that we provide services for and me training and building an interpreting team and running a small agency to uh, federal court work and then state department work and then some medical when needed. And that's what I've, I've done consistently. And they just added uh, to uh, my services uh, as people have requested me to, to do say, Hey, Javier, can you do this? Sure. Can you do some transcription? Sure. Can you, whatever, teach a course? Sure. And that's, uh, that's kind of been the story of the, my career. You know, I say it's amazing, but in all actuality, it's what it really is. If we really look at it, it's, preparation meets opportunity. So it wasn't really a stroke of luck that you met, right? The the person that ultimately invited you to kind of broaden your horizons. Your world was um, North Carolina, like you said, and then those experiences with those interpreters there and um, that feeling in that environment. And then, but you kept, you, you knew where you wanted to be what you wanted to get. You knew that objective. And the moment that you pushed yourself to, to go out of what in essence is our comfort zone, right? Those boundaries that, you know, are kind of created because they're, they're comfortable. The moment you broke out of that. And, and of course, you know, you're exposed to a whole new world. And then of course you're already prepared because you're doing all this stuff. I mean, I just, it, it, to me, it sounds like more of, yeah, it sounds great. Like somebody came to you and offered you something, but they wouldn't have done that if they wouldn't have seen something in you, which they wouldn't have seen something in you. if You wouldn't have prepared. Right. So there's like all these elements that come together. You hit the nail right on the head and that's um, you're exactly right. And that's kind of what I, I also try to teach people as well. Um, it, it comes down to preparation and I could have done less than I did when I was studying to become a state certified court interpreter. And maybe when I went to Agnes Hari, I would have been put in the medium group or the beginner group where I should have been. And that would have been absolutely fine because that's the path that I wanted. Right. But I did, I did extra. I, I did more. And it wasn't because I had a different vision. It's like, oh, hey, this is going to step, this, this will be a stepping stone to something greater. This is just what I think I need to do right now for what I want right now. If you told me, Hey, Javier, you're going to be working with, you know, you're going to be flying um, across the country. You can interpret for the secretary of state twice. I've been like, yeah, right. Um, You know, and I've had the opportunity to do that. Um, It it was something completely unfathomable to me, Uh, but it's because I was prepared and I hyper prepared. That's if I had done less, which would have been fine. 
I still would have probably passed the exam and been a certified court interpreter and had a wonderful career as a court interpreter and a medical interpreter and maybe something else. But it's because I was prepared and somebody else saw something in me that they said, hey, you can, you should try doing this as well. And you said yes. And I said yes. Yeah, which is key as well. Yeah. What what would you say, Javier, has been the biggest challenge in your career that you felt you had to overcome? So, um, you know, sometimes when we talk about the word challenge, um, you know, we're thinking about something that was that was just simply, you know, a difficult circumstance. But um, not so long ago, there was a guest here that that talked about challenge as actually something that's welcoming because it, it helps him to grow. So, you know, he sees it, he hears the word challenge, but it's not necessarily um, a negative connotation. So for you, what do you feel has been your biggest challenge and how were you able to overcome it? You ask great questions. <laughs> there are a couple different ways of, of answering that and really looking at the different roles that I've inhabited or different hats that I wear as a business owner, as an interpreter, translator, transcriber, as a trainer. Um, I love challenges, and which is part of the reason why I say yes to, to so many things. Like, hey, can you, you know, the reason I got into interpreter training was because uh, a friend of mine, he knew that I had passed the exams. And I think at that time I was federally certified because I was the next, the next goal. Um, and he his wife was going to become certified and say, Hey, we've already done these, all these other classes that are being offered. I I want something different. Would you be willing to put up to do a class to train people to pass the exam? Said, sure. And so I designed and developed a a class to, uh, to, to help interpreters pass the the state court interpreter exam along the same lines. My lady that I had uh, asked to mentor me, her name was, is Etta Trabing, a phenomenal interpreter, uh, in, she's in Houston now, I believe. And she was the president of the Carolina Association of Translators and Interpreters. She was the first federally certified interpreter that I met. She's the one that gave me the orientation course uh, in North Carolina. Uh, she had called me a few years later and said, hey, Javier, I had um, promised the law school that I would teach a class on interpreters, but I've moved out of the state. Would you be interested in teaching the class? Sure, I said. Right. So she said, we just talk to the dean, come up with a syllabus and just go teach. And I presented a syllabus, designed it and uh, taught. uh, It's called an intercession class at Campbell Law School. And it's in the period between the fall semester and the spring semester. They've got a two week period where students can take elective courses like how to pick a jury or uh, what shoes to wear on your first day of court. I I don't know. Probably some (laughs) some. Some great courses like that. And then I designed a course called Working with Interpreters in a Multicultural Classroom. So uh, I did that and was invited back for, for three years to teach that course. So uh, back to your question, right, about challenges uh, is that I'm constantly presented with new ones. And sometimes I have a tendency to just say yes. And then I find myself completely overwhelmed with with work um, and then on, on the business side as well, there's just so many tasks that need to get done that I've had to learn to delegate and pick team members to, to work with me and, and take care of uh, tasks of learning. I've learned 
No, I made every mistake. I continue making mistakes and I will make a thousand more mistakes probably by the end of today. Um, eventually, I start learning from those mistakes. It, it doesn't happen on the first time or the second time. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the learning part has to be deliberate. <laughs> yeah, it, it has to be. Life will will continue knocking at your door, throwing stuff in your face until you finally get like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's what you were trying to tell me the exactly. 667th time I've fallen on my face. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the one of the smartest decisions I made was I hired an answering service to just answer the phone. Just getting rid of that, having to constantly be connected. Because as interpreters, you know, we we always get last minute calls because everybody plans ahead for everything except for their language services needs. Like, oh, we got a trial. Everybody's here. Oh, we didn't have an interpreter. Where's the interpreter? Where's the interpreter? I didn't, you didn't call an interpreter? Oh yeah. So there's always last minute uh, stuff. So not being able to answer your phone means you miss, miss out on opportunities. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, hiring answering service and then finding a, finally a great admin to, to help with the business. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the, the biggest problems <clears throat> that I've faced uh, as, as many entrepreneurs and uh, self and freelancers too is trying to take on too much work and yeah. wanting to do it all yourself. Um, yeah, I love that. I I uh, recently um, I do a lot of audio books um, and I listen to the book on um, Think Like a Monk by uh, Jay Shetty. And uh, there's one particular phrase in there that uh, just really stood out because it has a little bit to do with, um, you know, your, your, this notion of delegating work somewhat, you know, I'm not saying that you delegate because you're bad at it. Um, you know, it obviously opens up the time for, for your more creative juices, the things that you're really good at to be able to dedicate more time to that. But he talks about how maybe your um, weaknesses are someone else's strengths and being able to open the opportunity for them to be good at what they do rather than having you focus on trying to strengthen that, like, you know, like, um, just focusing on, on the supposed weakness to try to strengthen it, focus on what are your strengths and allow for those weaknesses to be somebody else's strengths and, you know, being able to work on that. So it just kind of reminded me about, you know, this, this whole thing about delegating work. Um, and, and as you say, like now you're open, you know, that even that, that small thing, gave you the opportunity to focus on the things that you're, you know, you really shine where you really want to focus more time on. On the flip side of that, on the challenges, what would you consider has been your biggest highlight? Biggest highlights. Uh, I can't say that any particular one stands out. I have been really blessed over my last 22 years uh, in this profession that I've had just really cool uh, opportunities. Um, as, as a state department interpreter, I think, you know, having the opportunity to have interpreted twice for the secretary of state was definitely a, a major, a major highlight. Um, but then even just the different kind of work, uh, with, with state department, for example, where I've had to, I've been a mile deep inside of a coal mine, working with coal mining experts from Colombia. I've, been to three Hawaiian islands with a uh, guy who worked in the Galapagos looking at solid waste management at island parks. I've been to baseball opening 
uh, games, World World Cup, World Championship baseball games with players from Latin America, um, with youth baseball players. And we got batting practice with major leaguers. Um, I've done anti-terrorism assistance program working with the protection service that uh, protected the president of Colombia. Like just, there's just so many interesting uh, opportunities and, and, and life experiences that I've had. I mean, even working in a hospital, I remember the first time that I saw a baby being born, like who gets to see that? That was pretty cool. I was 19 and I'm there and you know, the, I'm interpreting while, while a baby's being born. I mean, that, that, that's something that definitely stands out. Um, yeah. I've been blessed with a lot of different, different opportunities in, in the different, uh, in the different fields, uh, that, that I've worked in. What is going on in your mind when these things are happening? Like, what is something that, you know, you remember, I know that there's times when um, I have to force myself to pause, to really take it in, you know, that not allow it to be just another day, you know, in, in, in business, right? Like just another day at work. Like I really have to pause and say, this is really happening and I'm in it and I'm involved. What is going on in your mind when you're doing all these I mean, Hawaii, state secretary, baseball. Game. I mean, what is, what are you telling yourself? Are you pinching yourself? I'm saying for God's sake, don't mess this up. That's really all I'm focused on is, is just let me get through this. This is, this is difficult work. Oh, you're and normal then. I'm you're happy totally to be normal. in it. And oh my goodness. hope they didn't catch that flub. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's really when you're, when I'm operating at, at any level, right. my, my only concern is let me make sure I get this right. And uh, that's really where all my concern is. And the, the afterwards, then it's like, oh, I really did that. But at, at the time, I'm, I'm trying to hold back nerves. And there's even, you know, it doesn't matter what I'm interpreting. Uh, I always start off with nerves because it's what we do is important. What we do matters are people relying on us. And it doesn't matter how great I was yesterday or how bad I was yesterday or how good I could be tomorrow. The only thing that matters is my rendition at this particular moment. And that's where my concern is, is just let me make sure I heard everything, understood everything, processed it, found the right solution and said something that was close enough to what the speaker intended that communication can happen. That's so great. Earlier, you talked um right through very briefly, you mentioned, you know, the fact that, um, you've got an agency now you've got your own company, right? You're, you're teaching. Uh, and so, uh, bring us to present day. Like what is Javier Castillo dedicating most of his time present day? What are you doing? And then we'll get into a little bit about how it is that you're teaching students, because I, I find it, well, well, we'll get into that, but super important when you talked about you reaching out to a mentor. So bring us pr to present day. So what takes up my time? Um, that's a great question. Uh, every day, every week is, is different. Um, in the last maybe two weeks, I just finished uh, doing uh, some interpreting, remote interpreting with the, the State Department on a job with a delegation from Colombia. Uh, between that, I was working on classes. I'm teaching about two webinars uh, a week and designing new material every day. I have been in federal court 
both in person and remotely. I've been working on some translation projects. I got just got a new transcription translation project today. I uh, found out I'll be testifying as an expert witness in two weeks at a trial, then uh, covering um, working to schedule interpreters for additional assignments. Uh, I've got a workman's comp case coming up on, on Friday, on Tuesday, that's going to conflict with another request. So uh, that's kind of what operates like. That's my day-to-day, uh, just dealing with new requests and working with um, my amazing uh Admin office manager, Aurora, who I could not live without. Um, just keeping up with with our the interpreters and the requests. We cover uh, a lot of medical clinics. We work with about 15 or 16 medical clinics in, in the area, providing on-site Spanish and sign language interpreters and just helping that run smoothly. Um, so, yeah, that, every day is just there's a constant flow of, of stuff coming in. And then trying to think about the next... The next couple of steps. Um, I'm also the, the president of the Carolina Association of Translators and Interpreters. Um, I'm also an, an EAPTI. I'm the head of the U.S. chapter of the International Association of Professional Translators and Interpreters. Um, and I was nominated for the board of NAGIT. We'll find out tomorrow if oh no way if I was elected. So just there's a constant stuff coming in day to day. And trying to trying to manage it, and of course, I've got three wonderful daughters and an amazing wife, and we have a new puppy. So there's uh, the days fill up pretty easily. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> so when do you have time to pause? Like, what? That's that that has to be very deliberate. That you know, with so much going on. That is something again. That is also a, a problem. Uh, just being able to turn it off mm-hmm. and uh, and really take a break, which is which is difficult to do for me because there's just always new, exciting projects <laughs> and, and things, things to do. Javier, I'm interested with, um, in terms of when you're teaching, which is one of the main reasons why I, I wanted to touch base with you was because I see a lot of communications that come out with um, some webinars that you give. And what are you mostly sought out for in terms of you know, your webinars now or your training now? I would say um, I, I, t- I teach a, a wide variety of classes. Um, we cover uh, a, a little bit of everything. Uh, I think what I'm sought after is, is my experience. So because I've been blessed to have worked doing conference work, doing court work, doing medical work, doing community interpreting, interpreting at schools, I, I, I have a wealth of experience to, to base my courses on and the material on. So mm. something I cannot uh, uh, dismiss is the, the training that I've gotten uh, from my colleagues, just working, having that, what that probably one of the best things about the state department uh, was that I was exposed to a team of amazing interpreters and literally some of the best in the world. And They've always the best ones have always been the ones to to reach out and, and help me and say, hey, Javier, I heard you doing this, or maybe you should try that, or oh, th- this is a note take note taking technique that I'm using. So the the best interpreters I've ever run into have always been the most humble and the ones most willing to share their experiences and and, and bring me in. Mm. Um, 
I, I find the uh, the reverse to be true with a lot of mediocre interpreters uh, who think they're great. And if they, they, there's a lot of, there can be a lot of defensiveness in this profession mm -hmm. and uh, people believe there's a fixed pie and a zero sum game. And the ones who really are phenomenal know that there's plenty of work for everybody and they want to bring everybody, bring them along and bring up interpreters. And so that's, that's definitely made an impact on me. And uh, I've learned a lot just by watching. You, you learn so much by just watching an amazing interpreter, how they handle the situation, how they rendered that, where they, that turn of phrase, like, oh, that was beautiful. I would have never come up with that. But now that I heard it, I'm definitely going to use it next time that situation uh, comes up. And so what I teach is my my experiences, how I've grown as an interpreter, things that I've seen. Uh, so the courses range everything. I teach uh, courses for medical and conference and community in interpreters, court interpreters, uh, skills, as well as language issues. Uh, I have a course called Interpreting as a Performance Art. Where mm -hmm. I was going to say... Did you did you include the acting piece in any of those? <laughs> Abs absolutely, because the the parallels are there. You being being a good actor and being a good interpreter, um, or the skills required are are, are the same. Uh, you know, stage presence, being able to memorize lines, uh, being able to inhabit somebody else's character because you've got to transmit tone and emotion. Because as an interpreter, it absolutely makes a difference. Um, you know, learning how to prepare study right? how, how an actor studies to become hamlet right there's mm -hmm. certain mannerisms there's certain texts and words that you have to learn and same thing with interpreters because you have to know how a lawyer is going to speak how the doctor is going to speak how the uh, it expert what terms is he or she going to use how are they going to phrase things what makes it sound natural because that's our goal right we have to make it our rendition sound as if they were uttered by a native speaker with the same level of intellect and intelligence, although those are synonyms, uh, intellect and style um, as the original. And that's the, type of the part of the acting piece. Yeah. And it sounds like, oh, that's a given, but it really, it's a learned skill. So, you know, you make it sound easy, like, yeah, there's all these components that are a part of it. But um, for those for those, the new generation, rather those students that are going through the process, you know, for them to know this is, it's, it's, it's an acquired and a learned skill. It's not something that just comes naturally because you're bilingual, because, you know, uh, because you have an interest in it. Like you, just like you said, you know, in the beginning of, of your career path, I mean, you deliberately put in the practice and sought out what you needed to improve on and refine. Uh, and then of course, you know, the, the rest is history because like we talked about preparation and opportunity. I think that today's conversation, uh, I've learned so much, Javier, already. I've learned that, uh, you know, associations, um, you know, we've had other guests here that have shared be a part of an association, go out and network, be a part of a larger group. You know, it's even though our, our work can be, um, we can work in silos, right? For the most part, <laughs> don't stay in it. Don't stay in that zone. Like, you know, make connections. Um, you talked about the mentorship, you know, and, and I really love that because many people, 
um, that are either just getting out into the real world and trying to make that connection between theory and practice. But where do I begin? How do I start? How do I find my niche? You know, um, they want to reach out to a mentor, but maybe they hesitate or they're not sure, you know, who to connect with. And, um, and the fact that you said, you know, I reached out and just like you just said, those great interpreters, the ones that you want to learn from, um, will say yes. Right. If they say no, then do you really want to learn from that person? You know, is that really the type of vibe or the energy that you want? Don't make that connection, but don't stop either because one person said, no, you know, you continue to, to look at, well, who do I want to be like, right? I really want to do what Javier has done after today's conversation. And so perhaps I can connect with Javier and see what recommendations he can give. And speaking of which, what recommendations would you give an aspiring interpreter, Javier? Recommendations for aspiring interpreters. Um, definitely, like you mentioned, uh, reaching out to associations. Uh, I've got to plug the Carolina Association of Translators Interpreters for Interpreters North and South Carolina. We have a program called Learning the Ropes, where we do match up anybody who wants to be mentored. We match them up with mentor with mentors. Right? So we have a mentee-mentor relationships in there. So that's something that our professional association offers, and I'm sure that others do as well. So definitely join associations, learn about what it really is that you want to do, and know that it's going to require a ton of work. And it is much harder than you can possibly imagine. We don't think, especially because many of us fell into interpreting. Many people fell into it because they had to interpret for their parents or their grandparents or their sisters or their siblings or their uncles. And they grew up doing ad hoc interpreting, but with never really an understanding of what makes the difference between an ad hoc and a professional interpreter. And I know lots of people who have interpreted and continue working as professional interpreters, and yet they've never read a book in their target language. They think that their the Spanish that they learned in the house is enough, or they because they've lived in the United States for 10 years, that their English is enough. And it, it's not. So the starting off point is making sure your language skills are are solid, right? Uh, as I always, in every single class that I teach and every single opportunity I get, right? I always talk about the first rule of interpreting is you can't interpret what you don't understand. Mm. And so you have to study. You're not born knowing medical terminology, legal terminology, computer terminology, um, coal mining terminology, just because you speak the language. You have to learn the language of the industry that you're going to be interpreting for and for the people, how do politicians speak? They don't say, Hey y'all, what's up? Right. They're both greetings. Good afternoon, fellow Americans. Okay. That sounds like a, a higher register term. Right. And so whatever, wherever you want to work as an interpreter, there are going to be nuances. There are going to be um, terminology. There's going to be ideas that are going to be completely foreign to you. And you have to, be willing to learn them and put in the grunt time uh, to not have your language skills, always work on polishing and perfecting them. Uh, back to 
if I can segue, uh, back to one of my challenges. One of my challenges as a professional interpreter was the fact that I grew up here most of my life in, in the state, in the States. And so my Spanish has not always been as strong as I want it to be because my high school college was taught, even though I took Spanish classes and French classes and, and did semesters abroad and, and lived abroad, it's not the same. And so I've had to work harder on my Spanish than my English. I still have to work on my English, uh, but I've had to work harder to build up my Spanish to be at the level of the people that I'm interpreting for. Mm. So knowing knowing that, that there's always you're a couple steps behind. Um, and then just having language skills and then understanding terminology does not interpret or make. You have to learn the skills. You have to have a good memory and you have to work on note, your note-taking and uh, your consecutive. You have to do be able to do simultaneous and you have to do good sight translation. Like There's no way around it, no matter where you are working. If you're doing your job right and with as an interpreter should be, there will be an opportunity to do consecutive sight and simul almost everywhere because that's is what is what is required at that moment for those parties and your skills have to be good enough uh to pass uh muster to 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 do what's what's required of you the other thing i i would caution uh everyone who's aspiring to you know pass a certification exam right that the real world is 10,000 times harder than anything that will be thrown at you at an interpreting exam. Now, the state court exam has a 20% pass rate. The federal exam has a 4% pass rate. I don't know what the pass rates are for medical interpreting. I imagine they're probably around the same, around 20%. But when you show up to take the interpreting exam, you're usually doing it on a day that you've rested the night before, that you've spent the last six weeks studying to pass this test, that you've made sure that everything is calm. When you walk into the room, you're given headphones. It's a quiet environment. Everything is sterile. That's not the real world. Right. And if the best you can do is minimum passing of the minimum requirements to pass the exams, then you're going to fail miserably when it gets really tough because the real world is much harder. Judges speak at 300 words a minute. There are defendants who mumble. There are witnesses from different countries with thick accents. There's sound issues. There are somebody's coughing in the background. There's a baby crying. Somebody coded next room. There's all these stressors that don't happen in the exam. So if you're studying to become an interpreter and you think, oh, if I just pass the exam, I will be good you're dead wrong. You have to be able to pass the minimum requirement, which is the exam, which is a high bar on your worst day. How are you, how, what is your rendition going to sound like when you're coming off the flu, when your car broke down, when you're running late, when you spill coffee on your jeans, when the defendant is mumbling, when you tripped on the way in and your thighs hurting. Okay. Now you're on the stand. Now can you interpret under those conditions? How is your rendition going to sound? It should be at your worst, whatever the minimum acceptable standard is, not on your best day, 
I, I can reach them because you're never going to have a day like that in the real world. You're never going to have a day where everything is perfect and everything is silent and you've gotten eight hours sleep and you've had your calming tea in the morning and you're ready to work. Life is much more difficult. So that would be the biggest advice I would give to interpreters is prepare for much harder material. Be prepared to do longer segments. Be prepared for more difficult terminology. Be prepared for everything. So then when it's easy, you will coast right through. And when it's tough, you will say, hey, I've done this before and you will do well. Good stuff, Javier. Such good stuff. This part of the podcast is uh, one of my favorite because I get to make the connection between your beginning and your present day. And the fact that, you know, uh, you aspire to be uh, an attorney and an actor and that you got to do both sort of, um, you are, you know, in the legal field and you definitely are in the acting field, uh, that you've been able to combine these things and, um, to be able just to, uh, not just make a reality, uh, about something that you aspire to be one day, but the fact that now you're giving that back, you know, by, by bringing your knowledge to aspiring interpreters and helping them out and giving them advice, just like you gave us just now is all great stuff. I consider you a master interpreter. I don't know what the actual definition of master interpreter is out there in the field. Doesn't matter. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast, our show. I consider you one. <laughs> and, and I really want to thank you for the opportunity to sit and talk to us and give us a little bit more about Javier and a little bit more about, you know, um, the behind the scenes of interpreting with Javier. Javier, before we go, uh, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? The best place to go would be the website. Uh, CastilleLanguageServices.com, or you can reach me at my email, Javier at CastilleLS.com. I'm happy to, to answer any questions, any way that I can help guide somebody, point them in the right direction. I tell anybody listening, please do not hesitate to, to reach out. This is why I do what I do. I want to help raise the level of the profession of interpreters everywhere. And if I can, interpreters, translators, legal, uh, I'm, language professionals. And if there's anything that I can do, I am you know, happy to, to help out, um, to help point people in, in the right direction. I by no means uh, consider myself as a, a master uh, of, of anything. Uh, I'm continuously learning. And uh, there's still a lot of improvement uh, in, in, in my life. So I, I thank you for that, that designation. Um, but you definitely, this isn't something that you can master and you, you're you constantly striving to, to be just a little bit better the next day. So anything that I can do to help anybody listening uh, in their career or point them in a different direction, please don't hesitate to reach out. And I'd like to add to that, that um, the definition that I have in my mind for master interpreter, just like uh, in the good old Star Wars, Master Yoda is not about all he knows. It's about all he gives. That's what makes him a master, giving away all he's learned to the new generation that's coming in. At least that's how I define it. So real Star Wars fan, don't come after me for that definition, but that's how I see it. And so that's why I define master interpreter that way. So 
master interpreter you are. That was horrible. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity, Javier.、Um, I really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to sharing it with everyone else. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. It was an honor for me to be here. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I hope to see you again here next week on the Brandy Interpreter podcast, where I share your stories about our profession. Till then. Since 2017, the Orange County Department of Education in California and their Language Services Unit is spearheading the professionalization of interpreters and translators working in educational settings and providing professional learning opportunities to bilingual staff by hosting their annual Interpreters and Translators Conference. With the participation of over 100 school districts from 25 states, 40 county offices of education, and 11 countries in the past four years, it is one of the most Most renowned events in the educational field. The Orange County Department of Education would like to invite you to their fifth annual conference on the road to professionalization, taking place September 8th through October 2nd, 2021, in a four week professional learning series. For more information on this event, please visit www.ocde.us. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com, and click on the Connect With Me tab. You can also stay connected on social media Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter, or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.